Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and I'm so happy that you're joining me for today's show. Before we get started, let me tell you about a few new things that are going on at teachmetotalk.com so you can stay caught up with all the exciting things going on around here. First of all, I have relaunched Skype consults, and let me explain what... I mean by that so that you or anyone else you might talk to about this (laughs) isn't confused. I did this a few years ago, and it's really successful, and then I stopped because of a conference season. Uh, I I guess it was a couple years ago, and then I never brought them back. And then lately I've had several requests for this, and they're so much fun. But let me tell you kind of what the procedure is and, and what it is and what it's not so that if you are interested, you can contact me or uh, pass it along to any family who might be interested. I'm offering 30-minute to hour Skype sessions, and it really just kind of depends on what a family's needs would be. And this is really for parents who have questions that extend beyond something that I could reasonably attempt to accomplish (laughs) on uh, just a written comment. So just a question that they would send me. And let me just say too, I'm not able to answer every individual email that I get because I get on average two to three hundred emails a day from parents. So it's just physically impossible to reply individually to every single question that I get. And here's here's another reason we don't do that because some days it really seems like I'm reading the same question over and over and over and over and sometimes I'll have to check and think, I think I already read this one or back when I was trying to really answer as many as I could, it would feel like I was reading and saying the same things over and over. So for that, I have implemented a post called Have a Question, I'm Here to Help. And so that's where a parent or a therapist would just send in a paragraph or so, just a question about a particular child, and just to kind of pick my brain. And again, to make this work for everyone, the question is posted and my reply is posted because, again, there's such valuable information there that sometimes parents can read about another child even and get ideas for their child or explain what they're hearing and seeing and feeling more clearly to me if they're asking a question or to another therapist or their doctor. And parents have told me, too, that they really like feeling like they're not the only one that this is happening to. So there's some camaraderie there and some a feeling of almost comfort in reading another parent's question. So that's going on there. And that, oh, gosh, you are just more than welcome at any time to post a question there. And I will do my best to try to reply. There are some parents, though, <laughs> who either want to remain anonymous or they're, and, and don't really want to post even anonymously, or they're feeling like, gosh, this is just beyond what I could ask you. And, and I really, what they're really kind of saying there, too, is I don't want you just to give me some kind of fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants response. I really want to hear what you think, and I want to be able to spend some time and ask you some questions and so the Skype consults really really work for that and again we can you know do half an hour an hour whatever a person would need for that so there's information there 
um, about scheduling those and all of those details at teachmetotalk.com, and it's on the home page right there, and it's in blue with the little Skype logo, and it's called Skype Consults. Now, I've done some consulting with therapists in the same way. If you have a particularly difficult case that you want to be able to pick my brain on, the very best way for you to do that is to be a guest on the podcast. <laughs> so you could call and or actually arrange a call. Let's schedule it ahead of time so that I have some prep time and know what you're going to ask and am able to formulate a better answer than, again, just kind of off the top of my head. That's the best way. But if you have something that, for whatever reason, you don't want out there, a few weeks ago, I, well, I probably shouldn't even talk about that very much, but I did a consult with someone who said, everybody in my office listens, so I don't want to be identified. They would even know my voice. They would, you know, I don't want any way, shape, or form to be able to be identified. So again, this is an avenue for that. So if you're struggling with something or you just need another opinion or <laughs> what happened with that therapist is I didn't even really feel like I was that helpful. She just talked about it out loud and I asked her some questions and she really, I think, I hope, got to wrap her head around that issue that she was facing better because she had a sounding board and it's kind of a different sounding board than you would get with your friend or your husband or even another therapist in your practice because I'm completely objective I don't know you and I don't know the family or the program or whatever whatever issue it is going on so I'm pretty much free to tell you what I really think and not care so much about <laughs> having to see you the next day so I can be completely objective and so if you need something like that that might be uh, an avenue for you too and again this really has stemmed from people feeling like I'm not getting as much information as I want to get from you I need more than five a five minute email response so it's just a nice way to be able to offer that service and I'm really excited about it we're going to keep it going through the summer at least and see how it goes so I wanted to let you know about those two things and again if you have a parent who really wants to ask a question sometimes speech pathologists are I don't want to say reluctant to refer parents to my site or anybody else's because that's not true I hear from parents all the time who say my speech pathologist told me about you or somebody that evaluated my child told me about you and told me about your side and I know that therapists recommend it all the time but sometimes you have a situation where again you don't really want a parent thinking that you're not quite sure what you're doing <laughs> so if you even want to ask a question like that or be a guest on the podcast you don't have to use your name or where you're really from people use aliases on here all the time so that's another way to kind of protect yourself and remain anonymous either by posting a question on the site or again being a guest on the podcast so I just want to let you know about all those things that are there and if you're interested in being a guest email me uh, my email address is laura at teachmetotalk.com and put in capital letters in the subject line, you know, podcast guest. So I'll be able to tease that out. And uh, I have someone helping me this summer too, kind of go through my emails and the comments on the website and everything. So that'll help her get things in the right folder as well. So 
wanted to mention that. Okay, let's talk about today's topic. And this is a fabulous question that a mom sent in originally via email. And I've been sending back a little kind of autoresponder that says, hey, I can't answer all these emails every day. Post the question here. And so she was nice enough to say, hey, you post it over there and then let me hear your answer. I really want to hear what you have to say about this. And it was such an interesting question that I immediately tagged it for a show. And this comes up not all the time. So it's something that I don't think I've ever done a show about But it's happened frequently enough, and as I was writing my response to her, I thought, you know, this is a fantastic show topic because it's something that we all should be aware of and thinking about. And certainly when we have a kid who fits this particular situation, as I discuss it and read her question, you're going to know why I think it's important for us to talk about this. And even as I read the question, you may not have the same slant on this as I do or the same take on it, or you may not have ever just thought about a kid in this way before. So I want to be sure that we are expanding how we think about children and expanding our bank of potential responses to parents when they ask us an interesting question like this. So again, I thought it was a great, great, great thing for us to discuss today. So let me just go ahead and read your question. She says, I've been following your blog for weeks now as we try to get to the root of what's going on with our 26-month-old son. Uh, To give you an idea of what we've been dealing with, several people at our early intervention system and at our local children's hospital have said that he is a mystery, and she put that in quotes, and they're simply not sure what's going on with him. We've scheduled three different appointments with developmental specialists, but of course they are months out at best. So while we wait, it's driving me crazy not knowing what's going on or the best way to help him. Here are his personality traits described to the best of my unprofessional opinion. And as I read this, you're going to see, man, this mom has got it going on. (laughs) She describes herself as unprofessional, but I love her very, very detailed descriptions and the information that she's included here. So hats off to that mom. Uh, And, again, I would want to say, don't discount that you're, you know, that you're saying you're unprofessional because this is fantastic information. All right. So she says, to me, he seems behind, and she has that in quotes. Plus, that he acts much like one would expect, uh, perhaps a typical 18-month-old. And remember, she said he's 26 months old. So she feels like there's mm, about a six to eight month delay there. She said, with exception to his motor skills, he has great motor skills. He doesn't really talk at all, but on occasion he'll mimic a word we say or use it within context. For example, he'll hold up his arms to be picked up or say up or even climb up when he's climbing up his swing set. Or we'll be reading and the book character will yell, hooray, and he'll say hooray. He's also learned songs such as Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star at his daycare, and he tries so hard to mimic the words and hand motions for his dad and me at home. The words are jumbled, but the intonation is there, and he's so proud of himself when we lavish him with praise for his efforts. And let me just stop and say, I love that phrase, lavish him with praise. That's something we should be encouraging all of our families to do, and we certainly should be doing that as a therapist, as a person working with the child, too. So I love it. Lavish him with praise. Okay, she says, here's the thing. His social skills are seemingly age-appropriate, if not advanced, according to his teachers and evaluators. He makes great eye contact, and he has really good joint attention. 
He loves to run and be with other kids the moment he sees them or hears their voices. He's perceptive to expression. For example, if you laugh, he'll laugh or smile too, even if he's unsure of what may be funny. He does not have tantrums or stem or show repetitive behavior or do many of the other things that they've looked into in association with ASD. And for those of you who are new to the show, new listeners, moms new to this whole weight talker thing, ASD stands for Autism Spectrum Disorders. And it's an abbreviation you'll commonly see as you're reading about autism. She said he's behind in his receptive language skills, but not terribly so. For example, he understands the most simple commands most of the time. With complex commands, it can get a little complicated for him. And when they do, he ignores us, likely because he has no idea what we're talking about. And to that, I want to say a big amen. (laughs) That's sometimes when kids really do kind of tune us out because It's like when we listen to a foreign language speaker or a language that's not, that you know, we're not native speakers and listeners. What do you do when somebody's doing that? Do you sit there and intently listen and try to pick out a word here or there? You might if you have some foreknowledge of that language or if you feel like you really need the information or if it's in a one-on-one communicative setting and they're trying to tell you something. But otherwise, if you were just passively listening, I'm like that little guy. I tune it out like I don't have a clue what you are saying, so why would I try? Again, if this is not something that I know is directed toward me, so it's no wonder that our little uh, friends who were toddlers and preschoolers would do that as well. She says, in the last two months, he's come really far with his receptive language, whereas before he turned to, I definitely had my concerns. That's a great thing, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Progress, progress, progress is always positive, always. So when we hear about a kid who's gotten better even before therapy started, we know that kid's going to have a better outcome than a kid who just stays the same forever. All right, she goes on and says a few other things about him. He always responds to his name and things such as wait. So, again, those directives that we give children, those we call them inhibitory words, And again, if you're not a therapist, that may be kind of a weird term to you, but think about what inhibit means. It means a word that you would use to stop a child's behavior. So words like wait, stop, no, come here, don't, you know, those kinds of words. Those are really, really important words for children. And when we speak, when we use those words when we're talking, even to toddlers, even to babies, we emphasize those words usually because something dangerous is about to happen. So we often infuse those words with emotion, meaning that we kind of yell or we say it passionately. So even if the child doesn't quite understand exactly what those words mean, he gets our intent, which is usually stop. <laughs> Don't do that. And and kids, even before they understand lots of other kinds of commands, should start to change should start to respond at least to those kinds of behaviors. So if I see a two-year-old, a two-and-a-half-year-old who never pauses when he hears the word like no, stop, wait, don't, come back, all those kinds of words, when he's not even noticing the emotion there, when he's not, when you see no change in his response, that's a big, big red flag that there are significant receptive language issues and processing issues going on because a child hasn't even learned to respond to something that, again, is uh, is a command to help him avoid 
danger. So now let's talk about this for a second too. And I know I'm getting off track, but if I don't say it now, I won't remember (laughs) when we get further along with the question. Sometimes a two-year-old who is a little bit of a stinker (laughs) will (laughs) laugh or look at you mischievously when he hears those words and then keep on doing whatever it is that's made you tell use one of those kinds of words and that's completely different that means hey i understand that you don't want me to do this but guess what lady this is about me and not you and i'm going to do my own thing regardless so that's a completely different issue in my mind those children do understand (laughs) kind of what your intent is there because they are letting you know, I'm going to do it anyway. So that's completely different than a child who doesn't respond at all, who you sound to them like, you know, I use this example all the time, the Charlie Brown teacher. You sound to them like wah, 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 and they just keep on uh, going because they have no notice that you have changed anything about how you're communicating with them. And so, again, big, big red flag. Even after about, gosh, 15, 18 months when when a kid is not responding to inhibitory words, that's something that should start happening in the 9 to 12-month developmental range. So that gives you a big indication that when you have a 2-year-old who's not doing that, that there's a pretty significant receptive language delay or disorder going on so just wanted to insert that but that's not the case with this little boy this mom says he always responds to his name name and things such as wait he follows basic instructions like throw the ball to daddy put the hat on mama's head etc he even looks both ways for cars before crossing the road i think that's a smart little boy how about you she said however he doesn't naturally point and naturally she has in quotes he will bring me an item he wants or reach up to it so he's not pointing but he's showing and let me just say showing is a huge gesture and it usually is indicative of a kid with social skills that are moving along because they want you to pay attention to what they have and they're trying to share that with you they are initiating contact with you so showing you know usually when we talk about gestures we'll say our big ones are pointing and waving the gestures that come in at 12 months but gosh showing is huge so if you don't routinely say how does this kid do with gestures you know pointing waving clapping you need to include the word showing (laughs) showing in there because that's a huge huge gesture that really again will give you some nice nice information about how a child is moving along socially all right so this kid does that no pointing but he does have some showing and he has some reaching she said if we give him choices we can say point to the one you want and he will do so but only if we ask him so aha She described it beautifully. She said he doesn't naturally point, but she said when we tell him to do it, he does it. So, again, that skill is there. It's emerging, but it's not completely spontaneous or consistent. She said, it's my understanding that most kids just naturally know how to do this, and she's talking about pointing, and that's true. We don't really have to sit down and teach a typically developing child how to point. Usually they're seeing us point when we are playing with a toy or reading a book or anything like that, they may see it in that really specific circumstance where 
you know, we're right in front of them. But lots of the time, we just model pointing for children when we're trying to redirect their attention, when we're saying, you know, let's say we're outside and let's say there's a big truck and we know that this child loves big trucks. So we might say, look, look, it's a truck. Here comes a truck. Or daddy's approaching us. You know, somewhere when we're all out together. Say we're at church and he's walking across the parking lot and we're saying, look, here comes daddy. See, see, we naturally point. We're we're modeling that. We don't have to show typically developing babies. And again, this usually happens right before a kid turns one, right at 12 months, where they sort of start picking it up and they start to do it to direct our attention to things, to get us to look across the room <laughs> at something. And it is a skill like everything else with typically developing toddlers that just kind of emerges on its own. So this mom is with it. She's really read that, that we don't usually have to teach a kid how to point. And she said also he doesn't call for mama or dada, but someone can say, give your mama a hug and he'll do it. Or, uh, and she's added, he's a very affectionate little boy, and she said he can blow kisses and wave and say bye-bye, but he isn't always consistent with it. He also has trouble with nouns, such as simple things, uh, and I don't think we've ever heard him say dog, but he uses action words without prompting, like climb, jump, go, and up. So she says, we are at a loss. I've read that you should not use the same techniques for speech-delayed kids that you would use for ASD kids and vice versa, or it could be ineffective and even prolong the speech impairment. She said, while I'm fearful of labels in this case, I want to be sure we're using the right techniques to help him along. Any advice you could offer? So great, great, great question. So let me just kind of tease out what I said to her and even discuss it a little bit further in um, the reply that I gave her, and, and I want to make a big, big point here. <laughs> but let's start with the beginning where I understand why the evaluators might be at a loss to give him a firm diagnosis because on one hand, you see that he's not pointing, you hear that, and you hear that he's, you know, of course, has some delays with his language and the things that he is saying those things could be a little echolalic, maybe. I don't know that for sure, but it seems like mom is kind of insinuating that when she's writing this. So a little bit of that going on. But it's positives, oh, not pointing. We already talked about that, didn't we? So that's another little ding, 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 ding. <laughs> uh, thing that might have been going off in your mind as you were listening to his description so and he's he's um let's see let's look for some of these other negatives here oh well he had another couple little things that might have made you think gosh I wonder if that kid's on the spectrum and again as a therapist listening to this we all do this we hear about a kid we read a kid's history when we've gotten a new referral we're going through and reading mom's responses and you already start to kind of form an opinion don't you you already kind of think, oh, he's doing this, mm, I'm concerned about autism, or he's doing this, oh, that might be, you know, whatever the diagnosis would be. So we all kind of do these little things. So that's why these evaluators may, again, as mom is relaying this information to us, it sounds like they really were kind of concerned about autism, but he's got so many positives that they don't feel like he meets that 
specific diagnostic criteria. Let's just talk about his positives here. Mom says he's really social. He makes great eye contact. He uh, responds to his name. And we know over and over and over and over again, that's a big thing that we hear in histories of our little friends who do go on to be diagnosed with autism. That's one of the things that parents are most concerned about. A child can be 24 months, well, even earlier, 18 months, 24 months, 30 months, three years old, and still not consistently responding to his name. A lot of times parents think initially, can he even hear? I need to go get his hearing checked. And they kind of rule out, you know, rule out hearing loss or an audiological evaluation, or the doctor may look back and say, well, he passed his newborn hearing screening. That's not it. And so that is something that parents start to kind of question. And let's just say children should be responding to their names consistently at 12 months old. They first start to alert to their names at four to six months old and certainly are pretty consistent with that response by the time they're 12 months old. You know, uh, let me digress a little bit here. I've been doing that research project with University of Nebraska at Lincoln with Dr. Cynthia Crest, and I'm helping her standardize a test to be used for infants and toddlers. It's a communication behavior scale. And so we're looking at all of the things that come in during a baby's first year that really lead up to and predict the emergence of first words and early communication. And it's been so fun for me to revisit how language skills emerge. And so over the last several months, I've gotten the opportunity to evaluate a range of children from two months all the way up to the ones who've turned one. They've turned 12 months, but they're not 13 months yet. And it has been so interesting to see, you know, of course, two-month-olds and four-month-olds and six-month-olds that aren't really truly responding to their names or <laughs> consistently responding to their names. But it's very interesting that a six-month-old will really alert a little bit and kind of perk up when they hear something that even sort of sounds like their name. And then by the time they're closer to 12 months, man, they're looking. They're just they're responding very consistently. And, again, these are children with typically developing skills, or we anticipate that they're typically developing. And so it's been so refreshing to revisit that and really see, yes, that's what typically developing babies are able to do. And so when we hear in a child's history that they're not responding to their names, we know immediately there's a receptive language problem going on. Even if that's all it is, it's still a problem because we really do expect for a one-year-old to be able to know what his name is, to respond most fairly consistently when his mom or dad call him. Mom or dad shouldn't have to do backflips to get a kid to respond to their name. So wanted to mention that. So this mom is saying he responds to his name. He doesn't have any sensory issues that she's identified here. She mentioned some things. You know, he's not toe walking. He's not blah, 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 blah. I think that's this mom who said that. That might be another mom. I might be interjecting that in there. But she's saying he doesn't really have anything sensory-wise that would point to autism. Oh, that's what she said. He doesn't have tantrums. So we know that happens with every toddler. But our little friends who have lots and lots of 
really strong behavioral responses to situations that happen every day. Say the routine is messed up a little bit. They don't get to go outside when they're thinking they're going to go outside. Now, a typically developing toddler may pitch a fit, but mom can kind of distract him and get him to move on. When we hear a, a parent's concern that, that a child has tantrum after tantrum after tantrum, and a lot of those tantrums are related to inflexibility or rigidity, to wanting to do things the same way. Or if you have a little a little friend in therapy, a little client, that they just lose it every time you try to hold Thomas the train because they're trying to sit there and line him up and hoard him and them all. That's a real big red flag. And so she's she's saying, my little guy doesn't have any of that. So these are the things that the evaluators have looked for when originally they might have been leaning toward an autism diagnosis and they don't feel like he truly fits that criteria. And so she's saying they they don't know what to call him. And so her question that she ends with is, what do you do? And here here's what I want to say about this. And I've seen this happen a lot with kids. And a lot with parents who like this mom are just hot on that diagnostic skill. And they, I always love to work with moms like this because they, they kind of remind me of me with, I have to know exactly what this is so that I am ready to tackle it head on. And for so many of our little guys, here's the truth. We can't give them one firm final, this is it, there's no gray here, this is a black and white diagnosis. For a lot of our little guys, we can't do that because if we do, we may be wrong <laughs> because what what their little profile is doesn't really fit. And again, she's worried, she's read that you can't treat um, one, you can't mistreat or you can't select strategies for a kid that you could screw it up. If you think, if he's on the spectrum, but you treat it like a language delay, the mom has read or heard or somebody's told her <laughs> that you could really screw it up and that a kid wouldn't make progress. And so I want to kind of take a step back from that for a minute and say to me, we don't treat a particular diagnosis. Did you hear what I said there? We don't say this is the cookbook approach for autism and every kid with autism or ASD, we're going to follow XYZ and this is our only treatment plan for him. Or let's take something else. Let's say apraxia or apraxia may not be the best example there, but I already said it, so let's just use it. Apraxia. Or even something like a medical diagnosis like cerebral palsy or Down syndrome or any kind of other genetic kind of syndrome or, you know, chromosomal deletion there. Would we, do we tell parents this is fill-in-the-blank therapy? No. No, 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 no. We do not treat a specific diagnosis. And again, as a therapist, this should not be the first time you're hearing you're thinking about this. And in grad school, in our defense, sometimes on a test, 
just we you know we would get a case study there or certainly in clinic when we had our first few clients they did try to assign children based on the diagnosis was you know your language delayed kids or your fluency kids or whatever it kind of happened to be so that you got x number of hours with a certain population and that was just to build experience but when we are really really looking at individual children guys we can miss so many things when we go with what the diagnosis is i believe that we should always be looking at children individually with what their strengths and their weaknesses are and treat those and so as a speech language pathologist i don't really treat autism or even you know yeah, we treat a speech disorder differently than a language disorder. Yes, we do that. But as a firm diagnosis goes, do we have to have a, 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 a black and white, this is it, no ifs, ands, or buts about it diagnostically before we can determine what we're going to do with the child? Absolutely not. We are looking for what's going on with him. We use his strengths to shore up his weaknesses. We look at what the delays are, what the deficits are, and that's what we do for treatment. So for this little guy, you know, I kind of talked about this with his mom and said, we cannot miss a child's individualness. I don't think that's a real word, but it kind of fit there, so I used it. You know, we can't do that, and we can't depend on having a diagnosis when we start with a child to know what to do. I mean, how many of you, just think about you who are speech pathologist or uh, early interventionist, developmental interventionist, whatever you call yourself in your state, and I should try to address that before we're off here. I'm, I hope I can remember that thought because I got a really interesting email about that today. But whatever kind of therapist you are, how many times do you get kids that already have a firm diagnosis before you get them? Hardly any, right? In early intervention, you may, if you're in a clinic or a school setting, probably not even in a school setting, you may have some children who already have the diagnosis, but most of the time we don't. All we know about them is they're not talking or they're not talking and understanding. Most of the time it's just that, that talking piece, that straight expressive piece. So we should never think that we have to have a diagnosis before we proceed with determining and developing a treatment plan for it. And so that's something that as a mom, you may not know that. You may think, well, gosh, I've got to have exactly teased out, exactly, you know, somebody has got to have assigned him a diagnosis before we can have therapy. That's really not how it should work. A, a speech pathologist, a developmental interventionist, whoever the person is seeing your child, an OT, a PT, the psychologist, they should be able to work with a child and kind of, not kind of, get a treatment plan going even before a team or a doctor or whoever else is eventually going to give that child that firm diagnosis. But before then, you're still able to decide what you're going to work on with a child. So if you're a parent and you're thinking, you know, I've got to do the round of developmental specialists first. I'm, I'm not going to start this therapy thing. Until we get the developmental pediatricians go ahead on this. I really want to know what's going on. So it doesn't matter to me that I sit here for eight months and do nothing while we're waiting on that appointment. I hope, hope, hope that you would never feel that way because we can and should begin treatment with the child working on what the real 
issues seem to be, those individual differences, those things that concern you, we can start with interventions before we get that diagnosis. So while there may be some techniques that we would use based on what the diagnosis turns out to be, we should really have a big clue about that or have a direction to go even before that's determined. So I, I hope that if you're listening to hear that, because I did include this as the title, you know, when one, no one diagnosis fits, how to treat toddlers without a diagnosis, this is how we do it. We look for what the individual issues are and base our treatment plan on that. So let's go back to this little guy and talk about what our treatment plan would be. Do you remember what we said about him? Um, what were his strengths? He already has some words that, well, let's kind of go back to the very beginning. He had great, what's our foundational piece here? If you've been listening to the show for a while, you should kind of know where we begin with our treatment hierarchy for toddlers. What's the first thing we look at? We look at social skills. So how were his social skills? They were good. Remember what she said? He loved to be with other people. He likes other kids. He seeks her out. He shows her things. His eye contact is good. So for a kid like that, again, that's a core deficit with autism. So I understand why those evaluators would certainly are kind of checking that off the diagnostic list. So we would know, man, this is a strength for him. He likes these little games. He likes this interaction. I'm not going to have to teach him how to do it. So for that kind of kid, we would use that again as a plus when we're planning his treatment programs. What else did we say about him? What's the next piece beyond social skills? Cognition and receptive language. And do you remember what his mom said about him? She said he was behind significantly behind with receptive language, but he's catching up every day. And she's not as worried about that as she once was. So what does that tell you? <laughs> he's making progress. And again, remember what I said a minute ago about progress? That's always a good sign, right? We look for that. We listen for parents to say, you know, I've been worried about him, but while I was trying to get this whole thing set up, I've been really paying attention to how much I teach him and how much I work with him and play with him at home. And you know what? He's doing better. I mean, I want to say hallelujah every time I hear that because we know then that that child has potential. He's demonstrating to you that he's trying and he's making gains, even with just what mom has tried to focus on at home. So again, fantastic indicator there. She said he's still a little bit behind his peers. That just tells you what about receptive language. We're going to keep working on it. I'm going to develop some goals and strategies related to helping him continue to make those gains in the area of receptive language. So that's something that we would do with this treatment plan. And again, did we have to have somebody tell us <laughs> that he has a diagnosis that's associated with receptive language delays before we would work on that? No, because he's, we know just from interacting with him and from what mom has reported about him that he still is struggling a little bit to understand more complex commands and higher level language things. So that would tell you right there, hey, work on that. Get that piece going. Uh, develop some, again, goals and strategies related to that. Teach mom and dad some things to do to help him understand more and more and more of what he hears. 
What did she say about his expressive language? She said he's not saying very much, except he has some exclamatory words. He has some words that are I call verbal routines because they're words that are related to context, meaning that he only says up when he's holding up his arms to be picked up. That's okay. That's a start. He obviously understands it related to that context. So then what what would you do? I would work on using that word that he already understands and and says related to mom picking him up. I would try to help them generalize it. So what do I mean by that? I would play lots and lots of games where we are using toys or another person or some other object to further demonstrate or help him understand the word up applies to lots and lots and lots of things. So we're helping him carry over his receptive understanding of that word plus his expressive uh, use of that word. So even if right now up is just tied to when he lifts his little arms up, boy, I would be taking his favorite toy in a session and showing mom how to do this too, that if he likes cars, we're going to drive the car up, up, up the wall. If he likes balloons, we're going to throw that balloon up, 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 up. So he understands that we can use that word too. Bubbles go up when we play with those we would if he had a favorite stuffed animal or uh let's say they have a little nightly routine if we're you know when they get in bed they're gonna love on each other and hug and stuff before they settle down and read a book or whatever i would lift the blanket up or throw the pillow up i would talk to mom about all the different ways that she could use that word up that he could already say and transition that or as a speech pathologist would say generalize it to other context. So that would be a fabulous starting place. And she just from her history here, she's letting us know that he learns wor- to say words best in those highly um, emotional or exciting kinds of situations and highly routine, uh, routinized or however you want to call it, whatever you want to say about that, when it's tied to routine, tied to context. So those things that are repetitive. So I would really, really talk to mom about that and say how, you know, what else can we do? Let's look at what you guys already do here at home. What other little games do you play? Let's tease out some words from there. Let's pick some new kinds of targets from those things that you already do and that he already loves so that we can figure out how to build his expressive vocabulary using the things that he already knows and likes and the things that you already know to do and like to do with him. So we would really, really start with those kinds of things that that family's already doing every single day because we know that he learns through repetition and we know that he likes that those kinds of activities and he, he may need to hear it and and experience that particular event over and over and over and over before he can really begin to pop out that word and certainly master a word. So that's something we would know, again, without a diagnosis. We know that based on what mom, in all of her wisdom, knows about her little boy. And she's more of an expert, and she can give us more of what's really, really going to work with this kid based on what she sees day in and day out, much more so than a developmental pediatrician or specialist or whoever she's seeing that's only got a one- or two-time shot with this kid. And I'm not, please don't misunderstand, I'm not saying that we don't need those uh, highly specialized evaluations. We do, but (laughs) to begin therapy, 
we can start with the kinds of information that mom has already given us because just from these paragraphs that she's written me, we sat here together and what did we do? We developed a pretty good comprehensive treatment plan for him just based on what mom told us. And again, we're going to get even more information when we work with this little guy for the you know the first couple of sessions. We're going to learn even more about him so we can take that information and really, really tweak, get mom's feedback with what she does with him at home based on our initial recommendations. And we can come up with a pretty solid treatment plan for that kind of kid. And again, is it dependent on that final diagnosis? No, it's not. It's dependent on the information mom has given us about him and certainly that we glean from our own information, our own evaluations, our own treatment. You might think about it as diagnostic treatment, those first few sessions. That's kind of how I think about it because we're always looking for new information and and figuring out and, you know, putting our clinician hat on and kind of digging through what can he do, what can't he do. And that's based on what we see right in front of our eyes, not necessarily what we read about him on a piece of paper with a diagnosis and an ICD-9 code. So I don't want you to get stuck in that if you're a therapist. And again, I really don't think that happens a lot with therapists, but I think it's more with moms thinking and and. I understand why why a mom would feel this way, you know, especially if you read something. And let me just address this, too. Back to the whole apraxia thing a second ago when I said, well, you know, that might be an exception where if you try to just use general language stimulation techniques with a child with apraxia, you may not make very much progress because you're not really digging in and treating that motor speech component. But if with all of the children you see, if you're even if you're thinking about kind of general, well, with every child that you're establishing imitation as a core skill, regardless of the speech piece, the motor speech component with apraxia or phonological disorder or speech delay or language delay or autism or Down syndrome or prematurity, whatever you're seeing the kid, whatever the diagnosis happens to be or the original report, the original concern, if we're looking at these core skills like we talked about before, the social interaction piece, the cognitive receptive language piece, the expressive piece, and again, you can tease expressive all the way back down or You know, break it down, break it down, back up, back up, back up, back up, all the way to that earliest piece, which is imitating actions with objects and imitating gestures. If you if you're looking at those core skills, it for every kid, it really again won't matter what that diagnosis turns out to be. And so I do understand and can, especially with apraxia, appreciate that just a general language facilitation approach like talk to him, read to him, tell him to say stuff. I can see where if you were strictly looking at a situation like there that you would think, well, gosh, your strategies aren't really addressing what the real problem is and because you didn't know that he had a motor speech disorder, you weren't, your therapy was wrong. I get that, but For those of us who are so committed to 
early intervention and and we know our stuff <laughs> and we are looking at every child from that kind of core foundational level with social cognitive receptive expressive and we kind of again can break expressive down to imitative skills and move forward from there you're not going to miss the things that are going on with the kid you're not you're not going to miss it when when it's a problem you're not going to finally get a diagnosis with the kid six months in nine months in 12 months in and go oh darn it if i had known the right diagnosis i would have been treating him differently I hope that you're not that kind of therapist. I hope you're not so dependent on that. If you are covering your bases from the beginning, like we talk about every single week on this show, you you aren't doing that. You are addressing what you see right before you with your very own eyes. So you won't be guilty of using strategies that, that – and what would happen even if you did? You would have caught it. It wouldn't have taken you six months in to realize, man, this is not working. I need to – switch gears here I need to come up with something new what I've done you know it's not going to take you six months or nine months or a year to determine that you will know after gosh I hope several weeks that you're thinking oh I'm I'm not on the right trail here I'm I'm missing something with this child so you would have backed up or you would have hardly ever moved forward but technically that could happen too but you, you'll figure it out. You'll find your missing piece because you're looking at every single area of that child's development. All right, one other thing that happens, and I told this mom this, and this is this has happened, and this is what I kind of led with with the show. Sometimes when a child doesn't fit a diagnostic label neatly, it's because his parents have already done a pretty good job or often a really good job of addressing some of his little issues even before they knew it was going to be an issue. And I'll, I'll just give you some, some real examples from this. I had this little guy many, many years ago. He was in one of the DVDs. I think it's Teach Me to Listen and Obey, two, maybe one and two. And he did not get a spectrum diagnosis at the beginning, even though I felt like that was what was going on with him from the beginning. His original evaluator went in and said, well, he's way too social to be autistic, so just don't worry about that. So then it made it kind of hard for those of us who followed that original evaluator to broach that subject with parents because they had already kind of ruled that out. And here's what had happened with with this little guy, too. In a different family... He may have had more difficulty with those initial early um, social engagement skills. His eye contact wasn't great, but it was there. I mean, I, I don't even know that I would have called it inconsistent, but he he made eye contact, and he did had learned to show you something, and he had fair joint attention especially if it was something that if you knew him and what he liked you could pretty much get him to do some things and he and he did have some inflexibility but at two those things those core competencies those core diagnostic issues for autism were not nearly as pronounced as when he was four and five. So as he got older, and again, if you're a mom listening to this, you're going to say, well, you said he was in therapy and you seem like you're pretty good. So 
why couldn't you make all those things go away? <laughs> Let me just say, I know he was better having therapy at two had he not had any therapy at two. And his parents were so skilled and so fabulous at interacting with him and and working with him and living with him that they were able to really compensate so well for him when he was really, really young. And and boy, did he get better. I mean, his language, oh, his speech, he made huge improvements. But a lot of those really... um, he never would have been ranked severe in any of those issues that we just talked about, yet he was still on the spectrum. And again, he made remarkable progress. But he didn't get that diagnosis. The local people that he saw, specialty team of evaluators, said no autism. It wasn't until his parents just kept having that nagging feeling and they would have conversations with me and I would say, I see why you're still concerned about autism because I'm still a little bit concerned about that too and he's making gains, but I totally get why you still have that nagging feeling about it. It wasn't until they took him to a really renowned practice, a nationally recognized practice that uh, this national expert said to, uh, you know, a psychiatrist, psychologist said, yeah, he's on the spectrum. He's higher functioning. You've made incredible gains with him, but we can't ignore these these areas that that aren't completely normal, aren't completely typical, but they're still kind of there. He still has some issues with, with social skills, even though it's not significant, even though it's not severe. He still is a little bit different than normal. And his parents knew this. Why did they know it? Because they are totally uh, wonderful parents. They had other children. They could compare him to their previous, you know, experiences with their older children. So they knew, even though these other people were kind of saying, no, that's not it. So, again, my point is his parents, had he been in a different family, he might have looked totally different, and he might not have learned or, um, again, been his, his little brain reshaped and rewired from birth. He might have had more difficulty with those social engagement pieces had he not already had the benefit of living with parents who were in his face from birth and who were constantly redirecting him and going out of their way to teach him what words mean. And so he didn't look as severe, and he fooled a lot of professionals. (laughs) A lot of people were, well, not a lot, just the, well, the original evaluator and then a couple of other people that they saw in our town who would say, oh, no, don't worry about that. He really kind of fooled them because He was moving along in those areas. And again, those folks, let me just defend them. When you see a kid for, you know, an hour and a half, you may miss some things that you would notice if you saw the child week after week after week after week after week. And so certainly his parents, again, were, were intuitive enough to pick up on I know you're saying his eye contact is is there, but gosh, it's still not fantastic. Or, yeah, he does interact with me, but there's still something kind of 
not completely typical about this. So my point is sometimes we do have children who don't firmly meet all of the diagnostic criteria because their parents have done such a fabulous job of working with them, or let's say they've been in therapy for a while. We expect kids to get better, right? (laughs) We expect them to make gains. We expect them not to look the same way six months, nine months, 12 months, two years down the road because they benefited from our interventions, right? So sometimes that's why kids don't neatly fit a diagnostic label, especially when they're two, when they're so little, when they're one and two and three. And then if we do go ahead and get therapy started, we provide all of the wonderful strategies that we implement. We get parents on board. Everybody's doing the same thing. Certainly, they're going to be a lot better down the road. Now, will some of those core big diagnoses ever truly go away? A lot of people believe that you can be completely recovered from autism. A lot of experts would say that you can't, that if you're truly on the spectrum, that you're still going to have some differences even as you get older. Does that mean, though, that a kid won't be totally functional? Heck no. Don't you know families that you are working with the child, but you look at mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or the brother or sister, whoever, aunt, uncle, and you think if you lived in this time, you may have gotten a diagnosis too but those people are adults they're certainly functional they're they've graduated from college they're married they have children they work they have you know our our engineer families they they have professional advanced degrees so again I'm it sounds sort of like I'm saying speaking out of both sides of my mouth here but I'm really not Sometimes those core issues get a whole lot better, certainly better than if you had never done anything at all. But you still may hold on to that diagnosis for a long, long time, potentially forever. But don't let that, if you're a mom or dad, make you upset. Don't let that keep you from pursuing any kind of therapy because we want to do everything we can to help children achieve their highest potentials. And we don't know what that is. We don't know what that's going to look like for every single person. And remember, especially about autism, it's a spectrum diagnosis. So you're going to see no two kids that look alike who have autism. And certainly we can say with a big degree of confidence that early intervention always produces better outcomes than if you had not done anything at all. So don't let me talking about children who still get a diagnosis or who go on to kind of live with those challenges forever, don't let that stop you and don't let that give you, don't let that make you lose hope that what you're doing isn't going to matter because it absolutely, absolutely does. I'm just saying that sometimes why children don't fit into those distinct diagnostic labels is because you as a parent have already done a great job of providing intervention whether you knew it or not. And so that was my message with there. We can still provide fantastic services for children even when we don't have a clear-cut label. And sometimes, again, even as a parent, you've done that without even realizing it. And that that's what I think happens with some of our kids who seem kind of borderline and kind of iffy with this diagnosis piece. Okay, I hope that I have made uh, <laughs> this information. I hope I've given you some stuff to think about. I hope I've made it clearer 
for those of you who kind of struggle with this and who think about this kind of stuff like we do, who uh, live and breathe working with children uh, with communication delays, with difficulty understanding and using language. So it's a great, great question. I want to thank that mom again for letting me use her topic today, and I want to wish her the best of luck with her little guy. Uh, she sounds like a great mom, and again, hope we've given her some things to think about and work on. All right, that's all for this week. Have a fantastic weekend, and I'll catch up with you next week. Bye-bye.